Today from the Global Lane, big government and bureaucracy out of control. Every election, the government grows just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as each party is trying to outdo the other offering jobs. Historic failures draining the swamp and Donald Trump's biggest mistake combating the deep state. In two words, Jeff Sessions. The world's wealthiest man makes a move on Twitter. Will Elon Musk bring free speech to the social media giant? It's not necessarily clear that he's going to be able to get everything that he wants, but it, it, I think that he's definitely in a position to at least attempt to make some changes. And history making Ramadan prayers in Istanbul and New York City's Times Square. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Dismantling the deep state. Donald Trump wasn't the first president to attempt draining the federal swamp. Can it be done, or is an unelected bureaucracy impossible to defeat? Well, joining us is historian Larry Schweikert. He's author of the new book, Dragon Slayers, Six Presidents and Their War with the Swamp. Larry, I've got to say it's a fascinating book. You look at six presidents, Lincoln, Cleveland, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, Reagan, and Trump. And after reading your book, I come away a little discouraged, I must say, and feeling that Abraham Lincoln was probably the most successful in combating the swamp, in his case, the slave swamp. So the federal bureaucracy and its spoil system has actually grown way beyond what Lincoln battled. Please summarize for us, how has it evolved and changed over the years? Well, the uh, swamp or the, the spoil system, as it was then called, was created by Martin Van Buren when he was pretty much an obscure legislator out of New York State. And, and it was created in part as a way to uh, prevent a civil war. So Van Buren in particular sets up a brand new political party called the Democrat Party to prevent this civil war and protect and preserve slavery. And the way he planned to do that with people who were not in favor of slavery was to reward them with jobs or money or, or bribes, party positions and government positions. As the Whig Party becomes a competitor to the Democrats, they have to offer the same incentives, so they offer jobs too. So every election, the government grows just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as each party is trying to outdo the other offering jobs. Let's look at the deep state. I know Harry Truman actually created the Central Intelligence Agency when he signed the National Security Act of 1947. And after Kennedy's assassination, he wrote in a Washington Post op-ed that doing so was a mistake. If he had known what was going to happen, he would not have signed the act. So why did he regret it? And did the CIA, in your opinion, co-opt JFK? Or did JFK co-opt the CIA for his purposes? Well, well, Truman was right, and clearly after what's happened with Donald Trump, we see that the CIA, the FBI, even the DOJ itself have become these entities that can just um, uh, dismantle a popularly elected government from inside, and, and it's horrific. JFK's position was such that he saw the dangers of the CIA, but he needed them. He needed the CIA to uh, carry out his policies on Cuba, and more important, later, he needed them to carry out his policies in Vietnam because he was trying to avoid the uh, perception of, of uh, engaging in a war in South Vietnam, so he keeps putting in these CIA advisors and, and you know supposedly non-combat troops. 
I mean, one of the great myths is that Kennedy was getting us out of Vietnam because he said so to a couple of guys. But what he actually did was totally different. When he became president, there were 600 American personnel in South Vietnam. When Kennedy was assassinated, there were 16,000. And I want to get back to the deep state in a moment and Donald Trump. Uh, but first, Ronald Reagan, he may have cut taxes and budgets, but he really failed when it came to reducing the size of government. Why? Yeah, uh, Reagan came in with three major policy goals. Defeat the Soviet Union, check. Rebuild the American economy, check. Reduce the size of government, failed. And one of the main reasons he failed was, like Kennedy, he needed a lot of that deep state apparatus to help defeat the Soviet Union. And with Donald Trump, it was not just fighting a monstrous unelected bureaucracy, but also members of his own party, a biased media, big tech, social media, and the deep state. Wow. So tell us about that, because after reading your book, it's amazing that Donald Trump accomplished what he did. So much was against him, and no one was willing to carry out his agenda and presidential orders. So what was his biggest mistake? <laughs> Easy. In two words, Jeff Sessions. Um, Jeff Sessions was the most destructive attorney general in American history. And given some of the liberals who've been in that office, that's saying a lot. But by not doing what Trump needed him to do, which was to actively investigate the um, the Democrat side of the Russian collusion, which, of course, is where it was. That's where all the collusion was and the Hillary campaign and uh, to really get into and investigate the FBI, uh, Comey and uh, Peter Strzok and all these people. Uh, and Sessions did. Not only did he recuse himself, he, he completely took a hands-off approach to virtually anything that an attorney general should have done. For example, he wouldn't go after Antifa. He wouldn't go after any of the governors or mayors who were uh, opposing uh, Trump's immigration policies and who, who were engaging in these sanctuary cities or sanctuary states. He wouldn't crack down on Antifa or any of the um, rioting that was going on. Uh, basically, Sessions almost single-handedly torpedoed Trump for a better part of two years. And then when you get people like uh, Christopher Ray in there, who did absolutely nothing to clean out the FBI, even Michael Horowitz, who in his inspector general reports was pretty critical of the FBI, nevertheless winds up his reports by saying, but of course these aren't criminal activities and so there's really nothing to, to be concerned with here. Uh, I am told by people inside the administration that Trump had maybe 60 or 70 mega loyalists in the entire administration, and that includes about 3,000 people that Trump personally would have appointed. That That's... That's not going to get it done. Up next, more with historian Larry Schweikert and Donald Trump's battle against the deep state. Now, more with Larry Schweikert, author of the book Dragon Slayers, Six Presidents and Their War with the Swamp. Larry, on the COVID-19 pandemic, you mentioned that when it came to making changes at the CDC and the National Institute of Health, Mitch McConnell told the administration to cease and desist. Trump would never be allowed to get rid of Francis Collins and probably not Fauci either. So how did that affect what Trump wanted to do? 
Well, uh, and I was told this by Steve Bannon. He said one of the first things they were told was you can't go after Collins or Fauci. These guys are off limits. And uh, he took that to mean, and I think he's correct, that if Trump had tried to remove Collins or Fauci, he not only would have been impeached, he would have been removed from office. Um, now, later on, what happens is, is pretty amazing. Trump is by far the most federalist president we have, we have had probably in 100 years, um, since Cleveland. And, and people go, how can you say that? Because Trump always first tried to get Congress to do their jobs, and they wouldn't. He said, no, this is not something I should be doing. You guys should be doing it. And they, they wouldn't do it. So when it comes to the China virus, as I call it, what happened was Mike Pence and his chief of staff pitched an idea to Trump of federalism. Let's let the states control the China virus um, uh, um, epidemic and, and deal with it at the state level. Now, on the surface, this sounded good. But in reality, what that meant, and it appealed to Trump's federalism instincts, but in reality, what that meant was you were handing it right back over to, to uh, Fauci and the CDC, or as I always call him in my nicknames, Dr. Fallacy, and the CDC, uh, because no state had the uh, expertise, the medical wherewithal to challenge the CDC or the National Institutes of Health. So basically, they said, well, those guys know better than we do. And it really ended up putting all the power of the China virus pandemic back in the hands of Dr. Fauci. And what about the election in January 6th? Many people believe the fix was in with mail-in balloting and then big tech funding and social media censorship against Trump and his supporters. Explain. Well, we, we have abundant evidence that something was really, really off. In Arizona, where I am, for example, uh, the uh, audit found that there were 17,000 duplicate ballots, 57,000 ballots that were irregular, didn't have the right signatures or whatever. Now, the problem in our system is we have a secret ballot. And we don't know how those 17,000 duplicates voted. We all think we know they voted for Joe Biden, but we can't prove it unless you can canvas almost every single voter and say, uh, we have you on record as voting for Biden. Is that how you voted? Um, same thing when you get to Wisconsin. There are 137,000 uh, bad ballots and in Georgia and so on and so forth. The upshot is the election was almost certainly stolen, probably at the mail-in ballot level, but proving that is very, very difficult. Well, is the deep state too powerful then, and the bureaucracy now too big to be stopped or at least dismantled or weakened? What needs to happen, Larry? First thing is when Trump gets reelected, and I firmly believe he's gonna get reelected in a landslide, I'm thinking maybe 90 million votes. He's got to come in this time with a cadre of MAGA people armed with flamethrowers. They've got to go in, starting with the FBI, CIA, and DOJ, and get control of those organizations from the top down. Second, and this is Steve Bannon's idea, it's a very good one, you can start purging the deep state by offering incentives for people to retire early. As they retire early, you close their slot. You don't, you don't renew it. 
And that's a good way to start cutting down the size of the bureaucracy. Third, Trump tried this and had some success with it, but then he was out of office. Start moving D.C. out of D.C. Start moving all these offices into Nebraska and Alabama and Idaho. Uh, get them throughout the United States so you get these people away from the cocktail party circuit where they are so heavily influenced by their peers and start getting more popular and populist pressure on these people to do the right thing. And lastly, you've got to appoint judges who will be willing to say to these agencies, no, just because you think this is what your charter says doesn't mean that's what it says. Okay, we'll have to see if the future holds more of the same or if big changes ahead. Larry Schweikert, author of the new book, Dragon Slayers, and their war with the swamp, a must-read for American history lovers. Thanks, Larry, for sharing with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. Elon Musk has joined the board of directors at social media giant Twitter. The announcement came this week shortly after the world's wealthiest man bought up more than 9% of Twitter's stock, about $3 billion worth. That makes the Tesla CEO the largest individual shareholder in the company. What does this mean for Twitter and other social media platforms moving forward? Well, joining us is Young Voice's big tech opinion writer, political commentator James Chernowski. James, it's good to talk to you. So it was only two weeks ago that it looked like free speech advocate Elon Musk was preparing to start his own social media platform, and now this. So... How might this move affect Twitter and other social media companies? Thanks for having me on. I think that this development with Elon Musk certainly presents a unique opportunity to see just how uh, Elon Musk has an impact on, on changing Twitter's practices. The whole reason why he bought such a sizable share is that he wants to be an activist investor. He wants to see Twitter adhere to more free speech principles when it comes to how they're adhering to their policies. As to whether or not that will actually happen or not remains to be seen. So it's not necessarily clear that he's gonna be able to get everything that he wants, but it, it, I think that he's definitely in a position to at least attempt to make some changes. And that, that definitely gives us an interesting conversation. And, and really, he's more of a free speech advocate. I and mean, many conservatives think he's conservative. He just seem, seems like he supports free speech. And of course, many liberal media outlets are expressing concern about that move, criticizing Musk for his past, I guess they call it irresponsible behavior on social media. And MSNBC mentions a 2018 lawsuit against Musk from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Also his anti-vax tweets, they call those irresponsible. And Musk's social media comments are scary. So I'm assuming you have other views. Is this good for Twitter or is it irresponsible and scary, James? I think that it's uh, it's an opportunity for Twitter to maybe strike a better balance between where they are right now versus where perhaps Elon Musk would like them to be. I don't think it's necessarily unfair to say that um, there there is probably more uh, you know moderation being done than perhaps most people would like to go and see. I think Elon Musk has expressed his frustration at that numerous times, and that this is an opportunity for that to maybe change. Yeah, and he uh, met with the Babylon Bee before his Twitter stock purchase, and that meeting was significant because Twitter had suspended the Bee for its article calling Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary Rachel Levine Man of the Year. Levine's a transsexual. So what signal did Musk's meeting with the Bee send? He thought that the action that had been taken against the Bee's account uh, was something that was probably a step too far. 
Uh, Twitter does set the policies for how they want people to engage in their community, uh, and their their account was suspended because it was viewed as uh, as harassment uh, for misgendering uh, uh, Rachel Levine. Uh, so I think that you know while I didn't necessarily agree with uh, the conditions of re. Uh, reinstating the Babylon Bee's Twitter account, uh, they did have the rights to do what they were doing. And, you know, again, I, I think that there's something to be said about where these companies are making these choices on the on the margin and how we can try to strive for something that just, I think, better encompasses a, a, a more healthy discourse and allowing for parody, allowing for comedy, allowing for other things. Um, though I think it is important to balance that against not wanting to do something that might be uh, overly insensitive or, or hurtful to other folks. They have a community that they've built on Twitter, uh, and they're just being cognizant of that. And I think that, you know, sometimes it gets lost in, the, in all of this. And Twitter CEO uh, Parag Agrawal said this about the social media giant, quote, our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, but our role is to serve a healthy public conversation. Now, he suggests Twitter's less focused on free speech, more on changing times. Your thoughts? I think that uh, that's not an uncommon uh, refrain from people who operate in this space. Uh, it was actually the head of Xbox's uh, development team over there at Microsoft that said something similar where uh, they believe that that gaming console is not you know, meant to go and respect the First Amendment. The First Amendment, at the end of the day, is a constraint on the government's ability to limit your speech. Uh, rights and these private property, uh, you know, platforms like Twitter or Xbox or insert any social media company here. At the end of the day, they are private property, uh, and that means that they do have the right to go and restrict access and take any of the actions that they want to do. And it's not like it's just these big tech companies. I'll highlight just one example: in the president uh, Trump, he went and launched Truth Social. And if you read through his terms and services for his platform, it's actually very restrictive. Okay, so you don't see a major change here just because Elon Musk is on the board now of Twitter. When we're talking about a business, Twitter actually has some legitimate problems right now. It, it has a hard time monetizing its service. It has not had healthy profit margins. So I think, you know, for some investors in Twitter, when they see Elon Musk joining the board, I think that, you know, some of them are okay with him wanting to go and want, work on that free speech issue. But I think that they also want him to be a good steward for the company in trying to tackle the issues that they're facing. How can we make Twitter more profitable and actually, by extension, improve it as a product and service? So I imagine that those changes will be a little bit more uh, slow to take effect if he, if he is successful in his endeavors. Yeah, maybe slower than getting some tweets from Mars. Uh, Young Voices Big Tech opinion writer James Chernowski. Thank you, James, for being with us. We appreciate you setting us straight today. Thanks for having me. This week, Muslims around the world began their month-long time of fasting and prayer, Ramadan. During the past two years, because of the COVID pandemic, many corporate prayer and community iftar gatherings, that's meals uh, ending the daily fast, they were canceled. This year is different. Public gatherings resumed around the world in places like Cairo, Jakarta, and of course, Mecca, Saudi Arabia. In Istanbul, Turkey, Muslims celebrated the first Ramadan call to prayer at the Hagia Sophia Mosque since it was converted into a museum in 1934. Now, two years ago, the Turkish government decided to reconvert the majestic 1,500-year-old cathedral into a mosque. 5,000 miles away, there was another first, this one in New York City. Muslims gathered for the first time to pray publicly in Times Square. Some Christians complain that Muslims left their mosques to pray outdoors in the popular tourist spot, 
to stake a spiritual claim and territorial victory in America's financial capital. Others say the Muslims conducted Ramadan prayers there because they wanted to show the world they're a religion of peace and tolerance. Street preacher Samer Mohammed, a former Muslim that we have featured in several news stories over the years, decided to respond peacefully with prayers of his own. You are Alpha and Omega. You are living God. You are the living water. You are all Jesus. Love you, Lord. And because of his loud prayers, some people attending the Ramadan gathering peacefully confronted Samer, urging him to be quiet or leave Times Square. Immigrant Samer reminded them he has the right to free speech in America. You have the freedom to do? I have freedom to do what I want to do. No, I feel Jesus is the Lord. What's your opinion on it? I asked Samer Mohammed to share with us on how Christians should pray for Muslims during Ramadan. We need to pray for this month of Ramadan. Let the Lord Jesus Christ open the eyes of the Muslim and they can come to the light of the Lord. We need to pray for the, all the Muslims in the, all the world. Let the peace of God can come to them and show them what is the truth. Because only Jesus he is the truth and the way and the life. We pray for here for America, for the, all the students, for the Ravji. Let the gospel come to them and to know the truth. Amen. And let's pray for Muslims who are suffering because of war and violence in places like Yemen and Nigeria. Let's also pray for the Rohingya who have been forced to flee Myanmar and for Uyghur Muslims who are suffering in work camps in China. And let's remember our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ in Muslim countries, persecuted simply because they desire to worship Jesus freely or profess their faith openly to others. And let's pray for peace during Ramadan and for the upcoming Easter week. Often militant Muslims commit acts of violence against Christians and churches during this time. So let's pray that the scales will drop from blinded eyes, that people will see and feel the peace and joy that only Christ can give them, not only during Ramadan and Easter, but for eternity. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.